Welcome back tonight. Good to see you on Sunday night. I love driving up, and uh, I get here early. I get here before Juana starts, and seeing all the cars in the parking lot and the kids here does my heart well. I enjoy that a lot. So uh, uh, I'm thankful for all those over next door that are serving, and uh, we can be in here uh, studying God's Word. Take your copy of God's Word and go with me to Genesis chapter 41, and uh, we'll be down to verse 45 in just a moment. We are on Sunday evening spending our time looking at the life of Joseph. Uh, Sherry and I were, uh, I've told you before, she, she gets the litmus test of sermons before I ever get here. So she, uh, you know, whatever I'm studying, we talk about. And both of us agree Joseph is one of the, one of the funnest, most encouraging guys to study in the Bible, uh, you know, what God did in his life. And as we think about Joseph's life, um, you look at it in the beginning, <clears throat> and it's a bit it's a bit discouraging. You feel sorry for him. You almost I mean we we know, I tell you what a blessing that we can read the story and know what's gonna happen. But if you put yourself in his sandals, as it were, uh, you don't know what's gonna happen. Okay, you just trust God. And so what a, an example of faith this young man was to us and has recorded. Of course. Uh, rejected by his brothers, you know the story, um, hated. They were going to murder him, then they sold him to Potiphar there in Egypt. Probably spent 10 years, because we'll see in a minute, he was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh. He was a young man, uh, a teenager, uh, when all this happened. So at least 10 years, maybe 12 years of, of servitude and then imprisonment. So the first early part of his life uh, you know, metaphorically, nothing to write home about, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's suffering, and he's going through a lot of difficulty. But the thing that's most impressive to me is his faith never wavered. He never, uh, his faith in God was rock solid. I mean, he didn't know what God was doing, and he didn't know how it would end, but, but um, he, was, he was rock solid. And I really, when I study his life and other men in the Bible, men and women both, well, I pray God would help me be that way, you know, that no matter what happens, I mean, think about it for a minute. Do you ever have a discouraging day? I mean, we're kind of we're kind of wimpy sometimes in our faith, aren't we? We have a bad day. Uh, you know, metaphorically, you hit your finger with the hammer spiritually, and you want to go home and put a Band-Aid on it and not do anything, you know? And uh, but, but the men and women in the Bible, man, you read about these, these heroes of the faith, and they weren't like that. Now, God's timing, as we know, was always perfect. If God would have asked Joseph, I think, in the beginning, hey, Joseph, I think we're going to just put you in slavery and in jail for about 12 years. What do you think of that? Joseph might have asked for a different plan. But that was God's plan for him. And, and it was that when the time came, uh, God brought people into Joseph's life, the, the chief butler and baker, and they had dreams in the prison. You remember studying that? And they were sad. They couldn't understand their dreams. And so Joseph, God gave him the ability to interpret the dreams, and, and one was a good dream, and the other was bad. The, the, the butler was restored to his place of service, and the chief baker, not so much. He was hung on a tree. So he asked the butler, he said, hey, when you get out of here, put in a good word for me, because I helped you out, so you helped me out. Well, the butler jumped right on that, didn't he? Mm, no, two years later, um, Pharaoh has some dreams and he's upset because he can't interpret them and no wise men in the land can interpret them and, and, and the reason they couldn't we talked about this last week uh, God's word 
is discernible to God's people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so these dreams to Pharaoh were, were completely incoherent to them. And certainly the wise men who were pagans and depending on pagan deities who were no gods at all, these dreams came from God. And so amidst all of that turmoil, the butler remembered that, uh, hey, there was this guy, this Hebrew in jail who did pretty good things with dreams. And so he told Pharaoh and you know how that went. They snatched him out of the jail and gave him a shave, bath, and <clears throat> put some clean clothes on him and, and put him up in front of, of Pharaoh. Now, again, we're just kind of catching up the context here. Pharaoh expected Joseph to be able to do something, and he told Joseph, I heard you can interpret dreams, and you remember what Joseph said to him. He said, well, hey, me. He said, there's a God in heaven, Jehovah Elohim. He knows all about dreams. I don't know about dreams. Now, that could have went bad. I mean, that could have went, you know, Pharaoh could have got mad and killed the butler and him at the same time because he wasn't going to get what he wants. Uh, but thankfully, he wasn't like Nebuchadnezzar, right? So, uh, so Joseph said, no, but, you know, but my God, he can help you with your dreams and can bring peace that you're looking for. And then isn't that like our God? That's what we tell people. You're troubled in this life and you got difficulties. We know the God of peace. And uh, you can come to Jesus and get saved and no real peace and no real joy. So you know the story. Pharaoh told him the dreams about the seven fat cows and the seven ugly cows and the seven good heads of grain and the seven blighted heads of grain. And uh, Joseph, without hesitation, I mean, as soon as he was done, said, those dreams are the same. They're about the same event. And God said it twice because he wants you to pay attention to what he's about to do. Uh, and, and I thought, I didn't say this last week, but when I was studying this, uh, God's so patient with us, isn't he? I mean, God is just so long-suffering with us. As a parent, <clears throat> I don't like to tell my kids something more than once. How about you? I don't know about this generation now, parents, but in my house, my kids know that, hey, if I say, pick your junk up out of the floor and put it where it's supposed to be, it better not be laying there when I come back by. So, you know, that's all I'll say about that. So I expect them to hear you know, two ears and one mouth, listen to what I got to say, and, and then do what I ask you to do. But God with us, he repeats himself a lot in the Bible, doesn't he? <laughs> you say, why does he do that? Because we're slow on the uptake, that's why. Because we just, we don't, we don't listen. And so Joseph said to Pharaoh, he said, God, God gave you these two dreams so that you would know that he's serious about what he's going to do, that he's going to do this thing, and he wants you to pay attention of course, you know the interpretation. Joseph said to him, there's going to be seven years of, of plenty like you've never seen. The crops are going to just produce an abundance, uh, just going to overflow. And he said, then there's going to be seven years of famine like you've never seen. There'll be, the land will be waste. Uh, there'll be nothing. And so I can almost imagine as Pharaoh was processing that, you know, he's sitting there on his throne or his wise men around him, and they're all processing that. And I can almost, and, I, and again, I, I like to think about this kind of stuff. I don't know how it was because the Bible doesn't say, but you got to think, I would think Joseph is standing there and he tells them the interpretation and suddenly Pharaoh and them guys, Joseph is in like he isn't there anymore. And they suddenly begin to discuss, you know, what are we going to do? And the wise men begin to give their, their thoughts about what are we going to do, you know, and they, and they all are talking. And it's almost like Joseph, if you're, you know, watching this from afar, you know, it's almost like Joseph goes, and 
you know, like, excuse me, um, there's one more thing. I would strongly recommend that you find somebody and put them in charge and collect 20% of the stuff that in the good years so that we don't all starve to death in the bad years. And then at that point, I would think there was silence, you know, like, like you know, everybody's standing there looking at, at Pharaoh and looking at Joseph, and Pharaoh said, man, that's an excellent idea. And Joseph said, well, you need to, point, you need to find a man who can, who can manage this thing and get it done. And Pharaoh said, I think that's you. It's your idea, so you do it. And so Joseph, and here's the cool part about it. Not in just a day, but in a matter of hours, Joseph went from being a convict to prime minister of Egypt. I mean, not in, you know, and I don't know how long this whole process took, but in a matter of hours, he went from, he went from a Hebrew locked up in the jail that nobody's ever going to think about again to the man whom God's going to use to save all of Egypt and half the nations around them. And boy, I, that's the way our God does, doesn't he? I mean, he, he don't need a lot of time to do what he does. I mean, his plan is in place, and boom, when the time comes, Joseph is, is there. Now, that brings us to verse 45. We read it last week, but I want to read it again. I wrote in my notes, they, they began to Egyptianize Joseph, okay? I don't, I'm, I don't know if that's a term, but I think that's what they did here. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name uh, zephnath Paneah. And he gave him a wife, Asenath, and the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Now, the more I thought about this verse, again, in the, in the moment of all the changes in Joseph's life, the very next thing they do is they make him Egyptian. They try to make him 100% Egyptian. They change his name to an Egyptian name, and they give him a wife. Now, not any wife but a wife of, of high society. In other words, they gave him a wife that they perceived would match his status and place in Egypt. They gave him a wife who was a daughter of a high priest of On, one of the gods of Egypt. And so just a high society, I mean, in, in one move, not only is he going to be the prime minister, but they give him this wife. Now, you think, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, the big deal about it to, uh, to a devout Jew is Joseph's Hebrew and she's pagan. That would be a problem to most Jews, right? Because now he has a wife that isn't Hebrew. He has a wife that's outside the clan. He has a wife that, that's not included. Uh, and the more I thought about that, the more I thought about Joseph being a type of Christ. And if you permit, it's Sunday night, so let me just draw this picture for you for a few moments. Here's Joseph, whom we learned early on, who is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Hated by his own brethren, murdered as it were. They intended to never see him again. Is that not what happened to Jesus? Came from heaven, rejected of his own brethren, hung on a cross, executed. They hated him. They didn't like what he said. They didn't like what he stood for. Same for Joseph. Jesus would later uh, be crucified, rise from the, from the dead on the third day, and ascend back to heaven and become the Savior of all. Well, Joseph is a picture of that. They hated him. They sent him away. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And in the end, Joseph will end up being the one who saves his own family with the food that he stored up in Egypt. And I got to thinking about that picture of Jesus. Is that not what Jesus is doing today? Calling out a bride outside of Israel? 
Sure he is. Israel in the church age has been set aside, not rejected. God's, they're still God's people, trust me. And, and listen, by the way, I hope our leadership understands this. Those who bless Israel will be blessed, and those who curse Israel will be cursed still today. So it's in our best interest to stand by them, in our absolute best interest in every way. Okay, But in this church age, what is Jesus doing? Israel is set aside because of their rejection and disobedience. He's going to come back to them when the church is out of here. But what's Jesus doing right now? Is he not, is he not calling out a bride to himself? Sure he is. He's calling out a bride that isn't Hebrew. I'm not Hebrew, best I know. I've been thinking about taking one of them DNA tests. You ever take one of them? I'm almost afraid to. I'm not sure. Sherry said, I don't want to know where you came from. She said, uh, but I, I'm pretty sure European, you know, somewhere in, in that area. But the fact is, Jesus Christ is right now calling out people of every tongue and tribe in the world just like Joseph marrying this woman who was not of the house of Israel, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing today. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful God had a plan like that. Because if God didn't have a plan to call a bunch of people who are outside of the promised group, we'd all be in big trouble. I'm thankful that God has a church age. I'm thankful that the gospel is preached and that he would save somebody like me. I'm thankful that he would not only save me, but include me in his family. And call me to serve him and call me to do the things that I do in this life. Think about this woman for just a minute. This is good stuff. Well, I got to thinking about this stuff and couldn't write it down fast enough. Think about this young lady. We don't know anything about her other than her name right here. And I mean nothing other than she had some boys. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. We know nothing about this young lady. What do you think the odds are? And we shouldn't use odds of the Bible. What do you think the chances are? Her being married to Joseph that she didn't get saved at some point. I mean, we know Joseph's faith, right? Can you imagine being married to him? It's every day. Jehovah this and Jehovah that and Elohim. It's every day at the dinner table. We're going to pray and thank God for our food. Man, she might be the daughter of, of the high priest of On, but I think eventually, before it was all over with, she's worshiping Yahweh, uh, the God of Israel. Man, wouldn't it be neat to get to heaven and meet that young lady? But anyway, Joseph marries this woman, whom I think is a beautiful picture of a type of Christ in that God goes outside of Israel and saves people who aren't, who aren't part of Israel. Not only that, but it paints a wonderful picture of the great God. Let me give you three examples from the Old Testament. Um, one of them is this, is this woman. Now, remember this now. Think about this. Joseph was the one to whom the promise of Abraham was passing. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, okay? But Jesus came from the line of Judah. Everybody following me? So Judah's the one through whom the line of Christ came earthly to the throne of David. But still the promise was from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And this woman God, married into the plan of God, brought into the plan of God all by grace. Think about how lost this young lady must have been. Not only is she pagan, not only does she not know the God of Israel, but her daddy is the high priest of a pagan deity that doesn't even exist. And yet God takes this woman, and if we wanted to put it in our terms, she's one of the furthest away from includes her by grace in the plan. Man, isn't that good? That God looks for those that the whole world would look at and say, man, they're hopeless. There's no way they're coming. 
There's no way they have a chance. There's no way they're going to know. And then God brings Joseph into her life. And she meets this man and, and gets married to him. And probably not by choice. It's probably one of them things where Pharaoh said, you're marrying him and you're marrying her. And they said, yes, sir. And they got married. But what a, a, a that God brings this man into her life. And by the way, this is another thing I was thinking. It's dangerous on Sunday nights because I get to thinking too much. Let me, let me tell you another thing I was thinking about how this, what a picture this is. You know, in the, in the church today, unfortunately, we have, we have a lot of unequal marriages where a, a woman will be saved and the husband's not, or the husband's saved and the wife is not. Well, what, what are we supposed to do about that? You say, well, what happens? Well, the Bible's very clear about it. The Bible says that that lost person has their greatest opportunity to be saved because they're married to the saved person. And that the saved man or woman should spend their time loving and witnessing and, and not, listen, not nagging the daylights out of them, but living an example so that they see Jesus in you. And if that lost mate sees Jesus and their mate all the time, no matter how they act, you're loving them like Jesus and you're being like Jesus, sooner or later you're going to win them to Christ. Sooner or later, you're gonna, God's going to work in their heart. And so here's this woman married to a, a godly man, and it teaches us the plan of salvation is for everybody, and the offer of salvation is for everybody. Let me give you a second example in the Old Testament of exactly what God does here that is in the line of Jesus Christ. You remember in Joshua chapters 2 through 6, uh, they're going to cross over the Jordan River, and they're going to attack Jericho. And Jericho is this fortified city. And so you remember Joshua sent some spies over there to spy out the city. Remember that? And they go in there and then the word's out that there's some spies in the city and they want to find them and kill them. And they hide at Rahab's house. Remember her? Rahab the harlot. And, and she hides them. Now here's the cool part about that whole story. There's a lot of cool parts about that story. Let me tell you the really nice part about it. She said to the spies, she said this, pagan woman living in Jericho, Canaanite, she said, we've heard what your God did to the Egyptians. How long ago was that by the time they're crossing the river? 40 years. 40 years. And she says to the spies, man, we heard what your God did to the Egyptians. Boy, that's some testimony. 40 years later, she's going, we've been watching you guys. We've been keeping up with what you're doing. Even for 40 years, we don't know why you've been walking around in circles in the desert, but we've been watching you, and we know what your God did to the Egyptians. And Listen, and she said, and we're afraid. Well, listen, you know what that fear did for her? Led her to faith. Because she said, I don't know about all these Canaanite gods, but I saw and heard what your God did to the Egyptians, so I believe in your God. And she goes, I'll hide you guys. And I'll hide you because I believe in your God. And I believe your God is right. What is that? That's saving faith. She's believed God. And so she hit him and she said, look, you spare my family. She knew God was going to give them the city. She said, you spare my family when God gives this city into your hands. And they said, that's a deal. Remember what they said? Hang a, a scarlet thread over by the wall because her house was on the wall. And it isn't it amazing that when all the walls fell down, guess what part didn't fall down? The part where her house is at. And then when they went in, they spared her, her house. Now here's, it gets better than that. I mean, you say, well, that's pretty good. It is pretty good. That God's got this Canaanite woman 
in the city of Jericho and that he's sparing her and her family. But guess what? She became a, what, what's called in the Bible a Jewish proselyte. She's a Canaanite who comes into Jews among Israel and begins to worship Jehovah God. Well, while she's in the city in the Hebrews running around with Israel, she meets a man and gets married. Oh, if you go to Matthew chapter 1, you can find his name, Salmon. Watch this. Salmon and Rahab had a son named Boaz. Ever heard of him before? Oh, that leads me to the third one. Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and her boys, there's a famine in Israel. Instead of asking God what they ought to do, they just leave and go to Moab. And they get over Moab, and all the men die. And there's Naomi, and Ruth was married to one of the boys. And so they come back to Israel. And Ruth is taking care of her mother-in-law, who, and Ruth's a Moabite. And she goes out into Boaz's field. And man, what a wonderful love story that is. Boaz sees her and says, who is that? And the guy said, well, she's been coming out here gleaning the fields. And he said, well, leave the corners for her. You know, leave, leave some more stuff for her. And then she ends up, and him and her fall in love, and they get married. And Boaz redeems her, and he's the kinsman redeemer boy. Great story. Here's my point. In God's plan to save the world, all the way back here with the Egyptians, and then a Canaanite woman in, in, in Jericho, and a Moabite woman who comes back to live in Israel, God included the rest of the world in his plan. Because Boaz ends up marrying Ruth, whose mom and dad, Boaz's mom and dad, are Salmon and Rahab. So you got, you got a, a, a Canaanite woman who gets married to Boaz, and then Ruth and Boaz have Obed, who has Jesse, who has who? David, David who's the line of Jesus on the earth. So what do, we, what do we see in the lineage of the King of kings and Lord of lords who's going to sit on the throne of David? We see the whole human race represented in him through these women and through these other countries and these other peoples. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And we see it all the way back here with Joseph that in God's marvelous plan to use Israel to bring a Savior into the world, he's reaching out, God's reaching out into the world, saving people that aren't even in that group. And I say again, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful that we have that kind of God. Because if we didn't, we would all be hopelessly lost. Because there would be no other way to be saved. But God included. Part of verse 45, I know. And all that came from Joseph getting a wife. How about that? At the end of that, it says, so Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Now, here's what that means. Joseph went in, interpreted a dream. Pharaoh, hey, I recommend you get somebody in charge and, uh, you know, make a plan, collect 20%. And Pharaoh said, you're it. And if you read the whole story, Pharaoh said, whatever he says, do, do it. And so Joseph goes out and, and, and takes a, an examination tour. He goes around to look and he meets people. Why do you think he did that? Well, I think there are two obvious reasons and maybe more. One was to establish his authority that was just given to him by Pharaoh. In other words, he's going to go to the various parts of Egypt, and I'm almost sure, although I don't know exactly the structure, I've never really read how it was set up, but Egypt, I'm sure, had some was managed. I mean, there's Pharaoh, and then there's his administrators. I mean, we're told that that uh, the, the Persian Empire had satraps, and so they had them and divided up. And I'm sure Egypt had some kind of system. 
And so I can imagine that Joseph, now in his new position, wearing the ring and riding in the chariot, he's, uh, he's out meeting people, and he's meeting places, and he's figuring out, where, listen, we're going to store seven years worth of grain at 20% a year. We need some big buildings, and we need some big granaries, and we need some, we, we need some managers, and we need people in charge in the areas. And so I'm sure Joseph was setting up some kind of infrastructure to manage this thing. Now, here's the question I'll ask. You don't have to answer out loud. Where did, where did Joseph learn to do all that? How about in the house of Potiphar for 10 years? Because last time we saw Joseph serving in the house of Potiphar, what's he doing? Managing everything the man owns, his resources, his foods, and everything. Now all Joseph did is got promoted to a, a little bigger job. You're not just managing one house. I want you to manage the affairs of all of Egypt. And so he's out getting the lay of the land. And listen, any good leader does that. Any leader who's given responsibility over resources or over things examines it and pays attention to it. I remember in the military, man, I've been retired 22 years now. That makes me feel bad, but that's a long time. But I remember when they would send me to a new ship, and they would say, you're, you know, and I would take over the department. And I remember how I was always uneasy about that because I didn't know what the guy or gal before me had been doing. And so I would spend like two weeks in my turnover with a little pad in my pocket. We didn't have laptops back then. We had paper and pencil and, uh, or pen. And so I had this little pad in my pocket. And when we would go look at stuff and I would see stuff that I wanted to check up on or I didn't like, I'd write it down. And then when it got time to turn over, like for me to sign on the dotted line, I said, before I sign, you and I need to look at some stuff. And I'd get out my little notepad, and we would go around and make sure everything was good and do inventories and stuff. Because once you signed it on the dotted line that you owned it, you owned it. Uh, and I, I don't tell this story too long, but I remember one time I was relieving this guy, apropos to Joseph here, and his operation was like a soup sandwich, and that's all I say about that. That, that, thing, that thing was messed up every way you could possibly messed up. In fact, at the end of the day, when I, had, when I did the inventory, it was so messed up that I counted myself. He was missing uh, like $40,000. And so I went into the guy, the boss, the commander that was going to be my boss, and I said, sir, I don't want to cause any perturbations in the process here. But by my best calculations, he's missing $40,000. And the guy's sitting right there on the couch. And I said, I ain't signing anything. I said, you can do with me whatever you want to. You can send me to another job. Uh, but there's something, something squirrely going on here, and I ain't signing for it. So the suppo sent him out. And he looked at me, and he said, I know it's messed up. He said, but can you fix it? I said, well, I can fix it. He may go to jail, but I can fix it. And he said, okay, I want you to sign for what you counted. And when they come looking for somebody for the other $40,000, we will just send them to see him at his next duty station. <laughs> and I said, I can do that. And so I signed. They didn't arrest the guy because I ended up finding his bookkeeping was horrendous. That's another story. But I found it and kept him out of jail. He never did thank me for that. But I did find his, I did find his mess. My point is Joseph was being a good manager and a good leader. He went out and took a tour, uh, you know, to see what was going on. And then, and then secondly, kind of like in Nehemiah, he wanted to evaluate. He wanted to evaluate the people that were going to be doing this stuff and evaluate who was going to be working for him. And so now we see the process. Look at verse 46. 
here's where it tells us how old he was. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid up the food in the cities. He laid up in every city the food of the fields which surrounded them. Verse 49, Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting for it was immeasurable. That's incredible to read that. Joseph goes out and notice, notice his system here. He goes out to every city. Now imagine this, all the different districts of Egypt and they got fields and all along the Nile River. And so all of these agricultural centers. And so what he, he did the logical thing. He said, we don't want to have to move this grain a long distance. He says, so we're going to build storehouses in all these cities where this grain's going to be because you knew what he knew. When the food dries up, it's easier to feed the people from where they are than to have to move stuff around. So what he did is strategically build all these storehouses in these different cities around Egypt, and then as they grew the food, he would store it up. Now notice that it says in verse 49, those seven years were just like God said they were going to be. That The land produced food immeasurable. And you know what it reminded me of? God told Israel, and this is that God can control everything, and we just, we just are so hard-headed to, to listen to that. God told Israel, every, every sabbatical year, I want you to not plant, I want you to let the land rest. And God said, the year before that, I'll give you an abundance of harvest so you'll have enough food for two years. Now, what's, what's required in that? That you trust God. That you say, God's going to give me enough food so we're not going to starve to death. But they wouldn't do it. Part of the reason they went into captivity in Babylon, okay? Same thing right here. God said, in seven years, I'm going to pour it on you. For seven years, man, I'm going to make the crops grow like you have never seen, but then it's going to get bad. So Joseph took advantage. In fact, it says in verse 49 that he gathered very much grain. And then I like the next part. Ask the sand of the sea until he stopped counting. That's incredible. I can almost see Joseph set up some system, you know, all right, we're going to count, let's just call them bushels. I don't know if they called them bushels in Egypt. I don't know what they called them. Uh, I'm sure they had a word for it. Okay, we're going to count numbers of bushels of grain that we store up, and I want to keep good records. That would be like Joseph. I want to keep good records. I want to know how much grain, how much corn is in every storehouse throughout the land. I want good records. But the land produced so much food and, they were, and I have to think they were storing it so fast and so much of it that he was so consumed with building bigger buildings and more buildings that he finally said, you know what? We don't need to count it. Just put it in there. I mean, it's coming, it's coming in so fast. Just store it up. And what's amazing to me is he's only collecting 20%. If the 20% was that much, what about the other 80%? Now, I'm just thinking again outside the box. If I was a, you know, Joe Egyptian living in my house down there and I heard about this new Joseph guy who now is in charge of everything and I see that Joseph is storing up grain like crazy and that my crops are growing like I have never seen them grow before. Man, I mean, I got grain and corn everywhere. I might say to myself, self, there's some reason he's storing up grain. He said there's a famine coming. Maybe I need a bigger barn. And maybe I need to store up some grain. You follow what I'm saying? 
Maybe, maybe I would have, you know, as normal Joe Egyptian, I would have said, something's up. So I think I'm going to store up some more food in case, in case all this stuff really happens. And then I had another thought. Don't you just love Sunday nights? I had another thought. What do you think the testimony of Joseph was like among Egyptians? Here's something I was thinking. There are, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, in the daily Egyptian newspaper, I don't know if they had a newspaper, they knew about Joseph. Don't you think for a minute word didn't get out of the palace that there's this Hebrew kid who interpreted the dreams that nobody else could interpret, and now he's a prime minister? That would have got people's attention. And when he rode down Blanding in his number two chariot, it said he had a number two chariot. I wonder if it had a number two on it. Number two. Pharaoh has number one. He has number two. I don't know. But when, when he came by in his chariot, people knew who he was. Now, in all of that, don't you think you know Joseph is talking about God? Everywhere he goes, he's talking about God. Everywhere he goes, prime memory, he's talking about God. He's talking about the God of Israel. He's talking about the plenteous. He's talking about the famine. And by the time the famine gets there, I wonder how many people in Egypt got saved because of the testimony of Joseph. I wonder. Again, if I'm Joe Egyptian and I hear this guy interprets dreams and his God gives interpretation of dreams and then he foretells there's going to be all this abundance and then the famine comes and it's as bad as he said and he saved the grain, suddenly I'm thinking to myself from my family, maybe we need to follow that God. Maybe we need to worship that God because he's real. I've never seen Ra do that. I've never seen On do that. Never seen the frog god do that or the caterpillar frog god. or no, I never seen any of the, of the multitude of gods we had in Egypt do anything like that. But this god controls the crops. In an agricultural society, that's a big testimony. And I think, I think personally, I think Joseph had a great impact on Egypt, spiritually, in leading people to know who the true god was. Now, look at verse 50. And let's wrap it up here in a minute. Now, in that seven years of good, it gives us some personal stuff about Joseph. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And then verse 52, and the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. You know what I like about this? What I really like about this? These boys were born in the seven years of plenty. These boys were born when Joseph is on top, man. I mean, he's the prime minister. Things are going well. He's got a wife. He's got children now. He's got sons. You know, when we're doing really well is when we most often forget about God. When everything's going well, when we got money in the bank and health is good and the job's going good and we're getting promotions and life just seems to be all tidy with a bow on it, we tend, we, yeah, we tend to forget where our blessings come from because we start thinking that's just the way it ought to be. Not Joseph. What a testimony for us. I'll tell you one of, the, one of the greatest sins of our nation today among a multitude of them is that we've forgotten where our blessings come from. We've forgotten.
forgotten that it's God that feeds us. And it's God that makes our enemies to be at peace with us. And it's God who protects us. You know how much I like history. I could tell you some stuff about World War II that's purely divine. That God himself did the things he did to give us the victories we had. There's no other explanation for it because we ain't that smart. God did it. And Joseph is an example here that with all these blessings, he doesn't forget God. Now, the last part here, verses 53 to 57, the famine comes. Look at it and we'll wrap it up. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended. And the seven years of famine began to come as Joseph has said. The famine was in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, do it. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses. Now notice this, and he sold to the Egyptians. And the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. Just a couple of things to observe here. When they came to Joseph, when they came to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said, why are you talking to me? Go see the guy that's got all the food, all the grain. Notice that he didn't give it to them. We can do some economics right here. Joseph worked for Pharaoh. Now look, he's a Christian. Let's, let's call him a saved man because he was. So he's a child of God in the Old Testament vernacular. But in his secular job, who does he work for? He works for Pharaoh. He represents the government of Egypt. Whether you like the government, whether you don't like it, whether you agree with Pharaoh, whether you think he's whatever you think of him, there's some parallels there. He works for the government. So what does Joseph do as a good steward? He protects the interest of Pharaoh and the government. And he says, look, it costs money to store this stuff up. And it costs the government money to collect this stuff. And it costs money to build these buildings. And it costs Pharaoh money to do all this to provide food for you. So we ain't giving it to you. If you want it, you got to buy it. Man, there's some principles in there we could talk about, right? Joseph said, I'd be glad to give you some food, but you got to buy it. Now I'm going to get ahead in the story and we're going to close. The famine goes on so long, all the people run out of money. So now what are you going to do? Let them starve? Mm -mm. Joseph goes, what you got to trade? So he starts bartering with them. Up to the point where by the time the famine's over, Pharaoh owns all the land in Egypt. You say, well, that's cruel. That's wrong. No, it's not. He fed them. He fed every one of them. He fed them. He fed half the world because God prepared them. My point is, all throughout the Bible, you know the principle you find? If you want to eat, you better work. So, well, Pastor, that ain't mean. If you want to eat, you need to work. Now, the Bible tells us in the New Testament that if there are people who genuinely can't help themselves, then we help them. We show grace and we show mercy. And I could tell you story after story, but it's private of how this church does that. My opinion, in this country, there's too many people on the dole. Too many people getting handouts for nothing. I see a lot of things that need to be done in our country, need to be worked on. If we're going to give them stuff, they ought to work. Yeah, we'll give you some free money, but you need to fix these bridges and fix the road and, and, and whatever else we need to do. That's good for everybody. 
So you see that Joseph sold and he, uh, he made a profit for Pharaoh. Let me close with this. I'm sure that in this whole process, that's the last thing I wrote down here, there were naysayers and people who didn't like Joseph. We haven't even talked about that. I'm sure that Joseph faced some subliminal opposition. Now, nobody would openly oppose him. Why? Because Pharaoh gave him the ring, and he's the man. He's the prime minister. But, you know, you can oppose somebody without saying that you oppose them, right? You can, you can operate. And I'm almost sure Joseph had to deal with people like that. One, because he's a Hebrew. The Egypt, there would be some people who didn't think he ought to be in a position. And he faced opposition. But you know what? I would suggest that by the time the famine comes and they see that Joseph was right, a lot of them naysayers were like, man, Joseph, you're my friend now. And I like you, man. You're good, okay? I would say as Christians, there'll be people who won't like us and they won't like our message. But when trouble comes to their life and you got the answer and Jesus is the answer, they'll suddenly be your friend. Why? Because you can minister to them and you can help them. It's incumbent on us to do what Joseph did, set ourselves up to be able to help them when the time comes. And that means not taking it personal, not being ugly. Now, it's easier said than done. Gotcha. But that's the goal, okay? All right, that's Joseph up to that point. Now, what does that set the stage for? There's some Hebrew boys that are 